0: Today is March 22nd. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. My name is Salma Karashi. I'm your host, as usual. Our guest today is Ulrich Hoffman, who is the Peter Osipka Professor of Neural Electronic Systems at the Medical Center of the University of Freiburg. Correct. That's <laughs> okay. Hi. So his lab is building solutions to many neuroengineering problems, including... Let's see, closed loop brain machine interfaces, multi-site neuronal recordings, therapeutic microstimulations, biosignal processing, uh, intelligent implants, which I guess is part of the closed loop story, yeah, exactly. neurosurgical robotics, uh, and many other things. Yeah. Remote system yeah, just it goes on and on. So around the room we have Todd Troyer. Hello. We have Charlie Wilson. Hi. We have Fidel Santa Maria. Hi, Selma. And again, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So Because your work is so varied and covers so much ground, I resorted to looking at a review from 2012 where you begin by mentioning what's a really cool John von Neumann quote from the 50s, all stable processes we shall predict, all unstable processes we shall control. And that's sort of used to encapsulate how computational models connect theory, neurophysiology, and neuroengineering research and pave the way toward medical applications, which is a big focus of yours, is actual solutions. Yes. What are sort of the big areas that you are focused on that you think have kind of huge potential in using these sorts of approaches? Because there, there are a number that you talked about in this review, and I'll just go through consciousness, pathological oscillations, um, neuroprosthetics, and neuroenhancement, which is super cool. But you're working on kind of more fundamental uh Types of problems.
1: Yeah, because what if you let's take the neuroprosthetic, which is mentioned in there, um, this is, of course, the final goal uh, for neuroprosthetics, and of course, you need a lot of control in, in the neuroprosthetic system. You have a prosthesis, you control it by your own thoughts, by your own ideas, and um, it's not automatized in a way that it's kind of reproduces just a move or whatever. You want to make sure that this. Prosthesis is exactly doing what you want. And, by the way, it gives you information back into your own, uh, in your own conditions. I mean, you can feel it. That would be the best of all in your prosthetics. And that's actually behind all this story. You, get, you need to have uh, some technological device which you want to control and which gives information back to you in the most natural way as possible. So isn't
2: that quite... I was just wondering about the quote. I just can't get that von Neumann quote out of my head. But controlling... The arms. Unstable processes. So there's nothing more unstable than our limbs. They're like constantly unstable. Yeah. But the idea of control is to create stability. Uh, well,
1: the stability in a robotic system is differently defined than in our actually limbs, right? I oh, cool. A, there is a there is a different different approach to. Keeping your position, and as a human being, you have to keep it acting and uh, reacting. You have to actively stabilize your system. A robot, once the motor shut off, it's it's stuck. That's his position done, and uh, it's a different type of control. The point is that it's the it's the control we are thinking about is actually controlling the control the commanding of a robotic arm based on our intentions. And the feedback of this robotic arm back into the into our sensory system, so it's an outer closed loop or it's an outer control loop. Whereas inside the inner control loop of just the robotic system is a little different.
3: And controlling robot, yeah, depending on the size of the robot, the um, multi joint, they um, they talk a lot about. Um, Uh, momentum uh, and oscillations, right? Um, Especially in industrial robots. Yeah, but they have, you know, they have That's a huge problem, yeah.
1: They have huge huge arms and everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The problem we have here in this case when it comes to prostheses, to human usable prostheses is that, hey, they have to replace a non more existing hand or limb or whatever. That means that they have, they cannot be big like a car. You can't carry it around. They have to be small. Lobsters do. yeah, Yeah, but the lobster cannot drive a car then. Okay. So you have, to, you have to have something which is fitting your, the rest of your physiology. Mm. And this is actually quite an interesting challenge, just mechanically speaking, and uh, from the effect or from the motor's point of view. Have something which is long-lasting, producing the same output as a hand, for example, does. The, the carrying forces, the sensitivity we have in there. I mean, we feel in our fingers right. a couple of hundred micrometer distances and stuff. This sensitivity is right now completely lost. I mean, there, is, there are robotic hands out there, nicely working, um, controlled by external sensors of muscle, lower limb, upper limb muscle. They pick that up and do something out, it, out of it. Um, but the feedback you get in any of those current uh, prostheses out there is you have to look at them. You have to see them. That's the feedback loop. That's the only mm-hmm. feedback loop you have. You have to control by vision. Uh, but this is a little too, too weak because we do not look where our hand is and still can't feel with it. And that's actually what the neuroprosthesis would like to replace, would like to mimic an a actuator which is sensing back into and coupled to our neural system.
2: So we have to try to use the existing nervous system the best we can because we don't know how it works, so we can't reproduce what it does, right? So we try to keep everything as peripheral as possible. So we'd like to have real neural feedback, proprioceptive feedback, so that the spinal cord and the brain can process yes. it the way it normally would, and not try to figure out how the spinal exactly. cord and brain process prosthetic yeah. feedback. I
1: mean, it's, that a, that little, it's a little, it's a little easier because the proprioception and our brain—if we would—if if we, we don't necessarily have to hook to the peripheral nerves in order to co- go into our neural system and have then the processing done there. But you can, we can do some similar things, stimulation based on uh, stimulation already in the central nervous system, kind of. Theoretically, we can go upstream and still have the sensing response, which we would expect. With so, all for example,
2: you try to bypass the spinal cord? Yes, that's feasible theoretically. But it seems to me that one thing we know for sure is that uh, that the proprioception is really important in, in motion and spinal cord mm-hmm. level. So wouldn't we still need to figure out how to make the spinal cord level proprioception work?
1: Not, not necessarily. Um, it may be that it would impair a... Well, we're talking about a a non-existing prosthesis right now, right? Um, I would expect that such a prosthesis um, would be a little difficult to quickly move around in space without proprioception, Um, but you would still be able to control it, at least on the the, um, small scales when you really touch something, manipulate something with it. You don't need that for it.
2: It just seems to me that most of the thinking about this stuff that i hear about i'm just a tourist i don't know much about it but i hear about people trying to uh, just reproduce on the cortex some pattern that has to do with some sensory thing and act like oh that'll be fine the rest of the brain doesn't have to know anything the whole purpose of the brain is just to transmit stuff to the cortex if we bypass it all and tell the cortex then the person won't know the difference but of course all that information gets processed at subcortical levels and does stuff, and all that would be missing. And especially proprioception, I think of as the the best example of that because of its big job in the, in spinal control and movement.
1: I agree. Actually, I agree, but I agree to it in a different in a different direction than you think. My thinking is that what is done right now in stimulation of the motor cortex, or in this case of the sensory cortex, um, stimulation to have a to have a proper, uh, have a reception to get some senses out of that, which is done nowadays, and claim that it is reproducing the sensing properties of, of whatever hand or whatever, I would say this is way too crude to really call it that way. You get an effect, but I think since bypassing proprioception on one side and at the same at the other side, not really understanding how the electrical stimulation works and how it how it gets into the into the nervous system, um, you have two open questions here, which in my opinion does not reproduce the sensing modality as we as humans, healthy humans, have.
3: But, but what about, uh, I mean, there seems to be this kind of idea that, that the uh, prosthesis has to be identical to the original thing. I mean, that then you have to insert electrodes in somatosensory cortex uh, or whatever uh, to provide information. But I think there's accumulated evidence that, that sensory, what's it? sensory supplantation, like, you know, like... Like, uh, like the electrodes under the tongue to, to uh, help people um, keep their balance and, uh, and just stimulation on the back, even for reading. I mean, this is old stuff, but can you just send the sensory feedback through the skin in the back? And the body will be able to read some of it.
1: Some of it. You're right. Mm-hmm. It will read some of it. The, th- the theory behind that is that you want to replace that sensing pathway completely talking about a paraplegic who has no control at all, and right. this, it doesn't get the proprioceptive information through the spinal cord because it's broken. So then you need to kind of reproduce the complete calculation steps in between in your external system, artificial system, and then you need to feed it back into the sensing system of the, of the central nervous and uh, some of the sensory cortex in order to get the same feeling. The question is, do you need the same feeling in order to function properly during your li- daily life? Or is that yeah. an academic fancy question? Whether uh, hey, we can achieve it if we want it. It's an idea. Ideal. I, yes.
4: Uh-huh. Yeah. But, but someone, so isn't it like an empirical guess that your nervous system will do better with something that's related to this kinds of signals that it sees already? I mean, some people think you can do, oh, the brain's is plastic, you can do anything, and something's different, and then it'll just learn what the difference is, and then it'll learn that mapping, and it could be any. Then then it doesn't matter. You can put it anywhere, and the brain will adjust to something because it'll feel different, and then it'll take those differences and do whatever it needs to do. If you give it the feedback, and it'll learn to adjust. But the other way to think, I think, the reason that you would think that to do something more similar and make it kind of as peripheral as possible is there's a lot of Kind of innate code of whatever the representation is that we're already built to do that we're good at. We've learned related things already, and so the question is, what is the what is it about the representation that makes it easier or hard for the brain? Uh, and no one knows, I guess. Exactly, that's the point. Right? No one knows. So you guess is so. Some people guess that we're going to try to get it as as much like. Normal or natural, because that would be a good guess for what the brain would be easy to handle. And other people say, "Well, maybe we can just because it's complicated. Because you have to say you figure it out. Maybe if you get it wrong, it's worse. And maybe we shouldn't try to do that thing about Mm -hmm. uh, you know doing part way up the making a guess at some intermediate representation and reproduce that because you're wrong. Just go straight and see what you can Mm -hmm. have.
2: Maybe something that we gain by just looking at what's worked and what hasn't worked. So. A bunch of things work. There are a bunch of things that, that are being done now, like like uh, cochlear implants come come to mind. Yeah,
1: and uh, but they poorly work. It, they they are not optimal. They are they work. So great. Have...
2: So so maybe that gives uh, some information about why some things work and why some things don't. What's practical and what's not. Pr- I'm just. Sort but of it's, of thinking it's also about a very
0: different that. question for open loop versus closed loop, right?
2: I mean, yeah, I was just thinking maybe. Uh, you know, what we do is we just dream about maybe this would work and maybe that would work. Maybe you can bypass the spinal cord. Maybe you can't bypass the spinal cord. But some people have been out there trying to make things and testing to see what works and maybe they've already learned something that, that does sound so foreign to us, doesn't it? Cause we're like blue sky thinkers, but...
1: What about it? I mean, it's, I, I, I do agree, of course, some things work, but uh, do they work in the optimal way? Do they work without side effects? Do they work on the long term? Is their body not responding on, on these uh, situations? I mean, there is, a, there is a work out there, which was p- partly done in, in Freiburg, actually, um, where, they had a, where they implanted a, a patient an amputated patient with electrodes in the peripheral nerve stump. Actually, and they were on one side, they were recording command signals from the nerve stump, and the, uh, on the other direction, they were stimulating into the nerve stump. So they could use the complete spinal cord pathways up to the brain. And interestingly, the, this patient—I think there are 2 this patients were were able to determine certain sensual feedback. They were moving their hands. They were not trying to play the piano, but they were moving the hands and they were touching something. And they could interpret different softness, hardness of their uh, of the device that they took or the whatever and they grabbed. Um, however, this is a sensory feedback. They interpreted that their brain learned to interpret that signal they got from the pressure sensors transmitted to the nerve implant, and they, they learned to interpret that. This is by far not what this is by far not the same signal as you would get from your own pressure sensor on your own hand.
2: So is that the limiting factor, uh, the actual creating the electrodes that stimulate the nerve and everything? Yeah, there is no code.
1: There is no code how to write the information yeah. into the brain, into the nervous system in a way that it yeah. is universally used. It's physiologic.
2: With all the studies of, of somatosensory receptive fields and everything that have been done, we still don't know how to create yeah. the... The activity that this medicine yeah that's manage. true I mean right. there,
1: is, there is there are studies out there on the monkeys um, there are studies where they do stimulate the sensory system of the of a monkey by something which is called intracranial um, um, microstimulation microelectrode stimulating they injecting a they are pulsing with a two hundred hertz signal well they have a range from one hundred to what, 300 or so they are pulsing with a with a certain high frequency oh, okay high frequency um, frequency inside. And they get a response, and they get the monkey to respond in such a way as it would have been as if you would be touched naturally. However, is that really a perception base which is reminding the, the monkey of, hmm, this is touch, or is it just, this is an effect. I learned to respond on that effect in such a way. And I think this is not determined yet. And and this, this uh, intracranial micro-stimulation is done nowadays, but I think it's not... Put it this way, it's not to its optimal use yet. Right. It's not really there. And again, the point is that why nobody really understands what's going on there. For
2: peripheral nerve stimulation, it seems to me that trickiness wouldn't be in so much in the temporal pattern of each action potential because those have been studied so much. We know a lot about them. But in the distribution of, of activity in the different uh, axons because yeah, within in, the fun, in somatosensory the system, each axon is really unique and carries some unique piece exactly. of information that the next one doesn't have. So Perfect. there's not much redundancy. And so you'd have to imagine, I saw Star Trek where they, well, a long time ago where they were like micro-welding uh, all the nerves across Ooh. that cut nerve. Uh, did you see that episode? It was in the original series. And I thought... <laughs> That's it, very long ago. That <laughs> was a long ago. But it stuck in my mind. Okay, okay. <laughs> because the, because the, the key to that is to get it right, you know, to weave this one with that one and that one with that one and not get them cross, mm-hmm. and to make them exactly right. And even in a peripheral nerve, which has not so many axons, we still don't know how to do it, right? I couldn't, I couldn't uh, know that this particular axon is a proprioceptor axon and that I really should send it a signal from the proprioceptive input from some imaginary muscle that used to be there. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't know how to do that. I wouldn't know how to even identify which axel. You wouldn't do
1: that. Much. That's the fun part behind it. I mean, the experiment which was done in this patient, actually, and the stuff which is done in peripheral nerve stimulation at all, you are, you have a couple of parameters you can play around, and these parameters might then lead to what you're expecting in the input or in upstream information you want to relay. I mean, the parameter is how wide your pulse is, how, how, how short or how wide your pulse is and the next is um, how deep you go inside the, this peripheral nerve by steering it from different electrodes and again you have a huge parameter space to do that in in this example um 2014 paper also um they they had an electrode array short array they put in a just across the nerve and they were stimulating then a couple of those electrodes were evoking that sensory feeling so you didn't you don't know up front you just mm-hmm. try to find out afterwards, because a priori knowledge you don't get in such a detail as to really copy it, bring those axons back together one by one, and that's nothing we can get, at this time at least.
4: But so-and-so might be a bandwidth that the issue in, in the sense that hardly anybody's trying to, to get, even if you didn't get the right ones, maybe you didn't get the, need to get the right nerves, but you needed to get uh, enough diversity of nerves of the in, the, the richness of the input, would be some high dimensional space you get uh, different nerves firing at different ones maybe you could readjust to the pattern and when your brain could deal with that but you need a rich yes. a really rich input so and most of the the inputs that we get are really much lower dimension than what we get mm-hmm. from our sensory yeah if there are
2: 10,000 axons in there and then we have like 20 sp-
4: electrodes and we go
2: wow we've got lots of
4: that's a combination, yeah. Here. And then the output, and then then your expectations for what the output would be are also much less than you know what we can do, and that and that's all fine. So maybe the problem of a low input, uh, low output bandwidth, maybe you don't want to do any of the strategy. Maybe you want to do something completely different uh, in terms of not being following the the principles, the normal principles of the way the nervous system is organized and just do something that works.
1: No, the good thing the good thing about the nervous system is that it gets used to anything it is presented over a longer period of time. I mean so we don't have to really think about uh, about controlling strategies or anything upfront. We can test. And we can then, each patient, I assume that in the end, each patient was going to have his own particular stimulation pattern, given his implantation and given his, his abilities the rest of his nervous system can do. Yep. And one size fits all is nothing which is going to work in this situation anymore. That's yep. my point. But so
4: some of it then comes, it seems like the interesting problem then, is that the closing the loop with an individual patient, making the the flexibility of the device so that the, play, the patient can reoptimize the device based on the experience. And, and what do you mean by with the patient doing that? And what's the signals? And how, how do you go about that closed loop searching that space, which is a completely other problem than on either end, right? Not the robotics end and not yes. This is not how I it,
2: right? Like in deep brain stimulation, the neurologist turns the deep brain stimulator. And then they ask the patient to come in two weeks later and do it again. You could, in principle, make one that a patient could tune themselves, and they could take it home and be tuning themselves over a period of time and get it exactly right. You'd have to trust the patient not to mess themselves up. Uh, you'd have to make a stimulator that that couldn't possibly take them out into some edge effect where they couldn't get back.
4: But um, but you could ask you can imagine assessing them on some. Task right, like some yeah. do some behavioral task sure. or do some thing
1: but and give them objective. With- that's I you, you want to have a biomarker which you can quantify very easily as fast as possible in order to tune on to the optimal setting yeah. for the patient. I mean, there's a, there are there are deep brain but, stimulator settings right now or deep brain stimulator use right now for for depression uh, treatment, and this is by the neurologist uh, by the psychiatrist not really well taken approach because it takes half a year to a year to adjust that system. Well, because the, the the process of, I mean, you put putting the stimulator, and it has an effect, but this is the optimal effect. It takes forever to find out whether it yeah. is working. So the loop is extremely long.
2: And it can even make them feel worse. Yes. So a depressed patient start adjusting their own stimulator. It could make them more depressed, and they would just give up. On, on the other side, there is a... They would just say, oh, it's not worth it.
1: Yeah, okay. It's let's never going to on the other side, there is, a, there is a contingent closed-loop stimulation for a patient, actually. And... Um, Part of that is based on an algorithm analyzing um, brain signals, again, a biomarker. And, uh, and, but part of it is that the patients can stimulate themselves, given that they have a, a system in their hands, Um, when they feel that the aura is coming or whatever, that what they have a reason to believe that their epileptic seizure is setting in. And as it turns out that at least that's what what the medical statistics say on that topic is that those patients have a lot better quality of life because they can tune now. The system does not catch my uh, my seizure approaching. I do catch it. Now I stimulate. They have a lot better life. And they cannot do anything else than just trigger this stimulation, which they would get anyways if the system uh, um, sees it. And... um,
0: so is it always true that the perception precedes what the system might be able to monitor? No, that's not
1: always true. It's it's true in, in case
0: giving them that power in any case is probably
1: more effective. Is yes, exactly, saying, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm.
3: It's this kind of like old stuff of biofeedback, right? Yeah, like
1: but you, the patient in the loop. Uh-huh. The patient in the yeah. loop, and not a not a biomarker. Yes, uh-huh. but I am not so. Empowerment. Convinced. Yes, exactly empowerment. I mean, there are a couple of different things which are, which are going away. This is the most important thing for but don't,
3: me. But don't you think this is like just, I mean, this, I know that we are, have advanced a lot on the technology, but there seems to be a technological uh, bottleneck, right? And it's, it's the number of sides and the volume of the stimulation, right? Um, and um, we believe that um, nerves, uh, uh, um, we believe how they work from, from macroscopic recordings, uh-huh. right? Like, well, you sting the leg of the dog a little bit more and then it's going to fire a lot more and then you make your linear um, uh, plot and that's that. But we don't understand how the volley in, within the, uh, the, the the nerve is propagating and where it's going mm-hmm. uh, and this, the firing rate of in, individual acts. And so, so there's like an, an unknown, Right? Oh, absolutely! I mean, just, and and so the idea of pursuing an ideal solution with the present technology might be probably not not.
2: So, Fidel, maybe just improving electrodes, which is needed for the for this anyway. Uh-huh. We need electrodes that can stay in the animal a long time and the right. reaction. Uh, electrodes mm-hmm. that can stimulate very fine patterns of stimulation. Electrodes that can that can be used for recording at the same time they're being used for stimulation. That's what they need anyway in engineering, and right. that's what they need to answer the question that you pose. Right. So maybe there could be a, a sort of a closed loop, loop uh, <laughs> solution to the problem where you try something and you gather data while you're doing mm-hmm. it, and and you. So maybe the okay. the most important bottleneck is to build that stimulating and sensing device that can do it at high enough resolution, uh-huh. uh, and that's one of the things that you're working on
1: yes is that, that, is, that is true that's one of the things we do that in a discrete way right now we don't have it implantable yet this is a, there is a project going on where we try that to have it one ASIC essentially record amplify analyze the stuff and then feed back into a stimulator but uh, the system as it is right now has this size like a closet uh, but of course we need to have it this size like a like a button yeah. in order to get it stimulated so it's a lot of stuff to be done down the road and, and then again um, Fidel is quite right What you would like to have from the technological development, you would like to have an over-engineered approach in means of, I have thousands, perhaps 10,000 electrodes there. I don't need all of them in the end to give the best information or to give the best outcome for the patient, but I would like to be able to choose. I don't want to have just 20 electrodes in there, and then this is the only thing we can get. We cannot do better. I want to come from top and just shut off what we don't want. And this is from the electrode side the case, this is from the from the analysis side the case, from the power consumption the case. I would like to come from a way over mentioned, way over designed electronic or or hardware system to then go down into okay, what really do we need for this particular situation, this particular patient, this particular syndrome disease. You know, and we are not there. We are just scratching the bottom of all those problems yet. we are literally in a primitive situation for most of, this, of the situations. I mean, like cochlear implants, they use 22 electrodes to stimulate and they get something like 90%, 95% of speech recognition. They get almost nothing on music recognition. They get whatever, 50% or so. I mean, huh. it's of the patients hear something in the music. They, they hear speech, but not in a, not to mention symphonic bandwidth, right? So we are on the bottom there. In deep brain stimulation, the state of the art right now are four ring electrodes implanted. What can you do with shape-forming of, of an electric field to stimulate the area you're in with four electrodes? So There's not really a lot which can be done. Um, increase the number of electrodes, and you can try really steering and optimize the electrical stimulation according to the implant place you have chosen. Well, you achieved, because right. sometimes you choose something, and in the implantation, the achievement is a little different. And again, if you are starting from a high number of electrodes, then you, are, you can try to improve that for this particular patient, for this outcome, minimize side effects based on a wrong or not perfect implantation site. So I, I agree with Fidel. I want to have a lot better technology in place before I start about different new control theories and different, different models to implement. So what are, the, what are the roadblocks for that?
2: So what are the things that have to be achieved? One of them is just a really high density of... Contacts in a small area—that's one thing. That's maybe the which can survive
1: the stimulation. I mean, the point is you can easily have a lot of a lot of electrodes in one place, but you still want to achieve—you want to pipe charges through those electrodes. Which means that you need electrode material which is able to withstand electrochemically withstand this kind of this this um, uh, charges charge transfer into tissue. At the same time, it's not affecting the tissue in itself because it's irritating or whatever, and um, and it is the interfacing is kind of optimized so you're not producing a a bigger irritation by the stimulation. So you cannot just increase the number, you have have to increase the quality of that stuff, of electrons, for example. Like sure. the, like I've, I showed this I showed in the, in the presentation I showed this, this electrode, this polymer electrode, which has two different electrodes like the small ones and the bigger ones. The bigger ones are used for with the current technology are used for transferring charges into the tissue. You need a certain area because you 're limited with the charge density the, the tissue can survive if you're exceeding a certain, certain good, if you 're exceeding a threshold charge density, the tissue around it will die because to higher charge density, or even worse, the electrode will explode to higher charge density. So if you have something which can withstand higher charge density, you're in a better shape. You can make them smaller.
2: So what are the charge carriers, you, what, what molecules are actually carrying charge between the electrode and the tissue? We're used to think about chloride, like we put... Chloride and yeah, for yeah, I mean, there,
1: there, are, there are at least on the on the interface you have uh, you have a, quite a complex electrochemistry going on. Actually, you are if you're lucky, and if you're in the reversible phase, you can do the capacitive. You can inject uh, capacitive charges into the into the tissue, into the fluid, essentially, and that's okay because it's reversible charge and discharge a capacitor. So then it doesn't
2: matter. Right. What?
1: And then you have, and then you are, if you are, if you uh, reach, if you are kind of a little going outside of this uh, capacitive charges, you are literally having electrochemistry happening there. You're producing a redox reaction. In the easiest case, metal reversible platinum plus hydrogen. You get a, uh, you get a oh, water, you get a hydrogen on the platinum. That's reversible more or less. That's what's done in citric watermetry. Um, or you have something which is irreversible and then you are, you take iron, you put you put it in the border, leaving iron the oxide, the, and then you have Leaving rust. iron in the brain. Yes, exactly. Well, it's another Which one. You might get that, iron, too. Yeah. So um, it's really it really depends on how you get your charges across the electrode to and whether this charge is still effective for the purpose you have or not. It's, a, again, quite a high parameter space. And there are people out there, of course. I mean, i in Europe. There is a big funding behind that. Um, there's people out there who think that uh, that a material like graphene might improve that situation. Um, or carbon nanotubes which is in the world uh, out there in the world right now um that's that is a feasibility but i think what is proven yet is that their charge injection capacity for example is not exceeding um, uh, polymer electrolytic uh, electroconductive polymer like p dot a lot so we can we could do with what we have but this might be not sufficient for what you were suggesting a lot of electrodes uh, yeah. yes i would like to have them still they have to prove they have to work in the way we want to have them
2: and then I have to not get too big of a tissue reaction, I guess. The... Yes,
1: and then nobody knows whether it, what the tissue reaction is causing. Is that is that the currents and the electric fields inside that may that may be actually a point. Uh, but it's, I think it's not it's not well researched at all whether this is the kind of functional effect. And then the other effect is, of course, that just that there is sticking something in the brain or in the peripheral nerve or the cochlea that the body is reacting on it, and that means um, that means that it is it is say at least encapsulated by the brain and by all this mechanism to, to kind of passivate it against the brain. And um, But this passivation, then, of course, means that it reduces the effectivity of what we can do with it because there is all of, all of a sudden a tissue around it which we don't want to have there. So what one has to get used, and that's, in my opinion, quite clear, is that once uh, there is an implant, be it a cochlear implant or be it a DBS implant or whatever, um, we have to get used to the idea that Every half a year, a meeting with your doctor to adjust the settings for your stimulation device is really sufficient to to get the most, the optimum out of your system. I think this is not the idea. There has to be some algorithmic um, control theoretical approach inside which could improve that all by itself.
3: Especially for depression. Yes. And probably Parkinson is. They will go anyways. Yeah, but still, I uh, mean, in but the, uh, the depression—something is something that can get a sudden onset. Yeah, uh, then you will have to have some, definitely have some, real feedback.
1: Uh, well, the interesting thing is, I'm I'm not sure about this depression. Depression, there is no definitive answer where to implant a stimulator right now for depression. There are groups out there who have who are fancying different areas in the brain to to improve major depression disorder patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the the clinical trials on that are not really, say, clear that there is this optimal point um, until you don't have, whatever, 200 patients improve their, their depression by this position stimulation. I would not say that we are already there. But um, in the case of the, of the depression stimulation we do in Frivo with the, with the neurosurgeons, um, the interesting thing is that their effect at their position they are implanting is immediate. Which is surprising. So, which is interesting because, like, in depression and
3: PTSD and all the stuff, um, I mean, people are because it takes so long to see the doctor, right? They're talking about using ketamine, mm-hmm. right? And I think in England they have used it more successfully, yeah. So, but uh, then, and the, uh, uh, of course, you will need to have the electro implanted uh, to to have an immediate effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean that yeah, I mean the gonna... suicide rates in in um, in veterans as an issue,
1: yeah, that's that's. Mm-hmm. Good. And the question is, of course, whether this in this case is kind of depression after PTC. So, PTSD um, is really can be treated with um, stimulation, and the in the area which our patients get for long term depression it may be completely different.
3: Yeah, yeah,
1: it's a it's yeah. a very it's a very tricky, very tricky area. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that again. Same story. We are not there where we would like to be, but it's a way. It's a long way which we need to go. I think. There's also a set of
4: questions on the neurology side, right? So even if the interface with the device in the brain was completely stable and didn't change over time, your brain changes uh, and reacts to this long-term stimulation and has long-term adjustments and so forth that are not anywhere near the interface, right? So you have to also account for the fact when you get a biomarker, it could change over time just because your brain is changing its reaction to the same thing over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have all those sets of questions, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then again, you, have, you need a control loop behind it, or you need, you need hardware to be able to be adjusted on the fly, in a way. And, even, by the way, even worse, you need hardware to be adjusted on the fly and still running under the legal certificate requirement of medical devices. So medical device directive in Europe is very strict on that. It's not less in the U.S. So, you know, the problem is literally then for the companies that they get they can prove all this stuff in a safe margin and still play within the safe margin. I think this is not well defined yet. It's even worse problems as I see with uh, autonomous cars right now and from a legal point of view. Who's responsible in the end? And this is, a, this is a interesting, to me a little boring because it's small.
3: <laughs> but what about using it the opposite way? I mean, um, can you use this massive electrode implants to read? The state of the brain and to infer mental states to either engage the patient right for biofeedback or to I mean to change the like light therapy uh, uh, to increase the intensity of light in, the, in their houses um, instead of stimul- instead of injecting current then it will be a uh, uh, there will be a feedback but it's feedback in their environment. Um, and then you're not, you're, you don't need to inject current.
1: Yeah, but would you need an implant to get the lights adjusted? Wouldn't it be sufficient for the patients to say, I feel bad now, turn it off? No, because off. there's a, an issue
3: of when these things are happening and how far you can predict them. I mean, because is it one once the bout of depression starts, is it too late? Is there, are there biomarkers before? Right, it's the same thing with epilepsy. I mean, uh, trying to stop the epileptic attack when you start seeing the the ringing. Uh, okay, maybe maybe you can dampen it, but it's still you will have. No, um, so you can uh, stop it. Actually, uh,
1: you can stop the seizure by stimulation. But in order to recognize a seizure right. well, as a uh, as a true positive, and um, this is uh, at least tricky. This is. Um, the algorithms right. which are out there are not not really sufficiently predictive to do that. They have to wait till something happening and then they can stimulate. Hmm. And this might be the longest two seconds for the patient he ever experiences till the system is responding. Yeah, there is a seizure. Right. But that's something where is algorithmically there needs to be improvement too. Hmm. Which is not trivial either. So you're uh, you're right. I mean the, theoretically you could of course try to get the information from the brain signals and then control something which is feeding back on a depression state or whatever. Um, practically... Order you some uh, ice cream. cream. Oh, get some ice cream. Uh-huh.
3: connect that to Google.
1: Chocolate. Mm-hmm.
0: So just on a, a final point because we have to end soon. I, I want to ask about um, combining technologies or sort of doing a multimodal approach to either the monitoring end of it or the control. So, for example, like you know, using some other biomarker other than electrical activity, um, other sorts of biometrics, other, t- t- I mean, you mentioned light simulation. And you've kind of done some, at least in terms of uh, of classifier models and looking at different parameters, um, different types of technologies on predicting neural activity. But how... I'm disappointed feasible, by that. Yeah, it seems that that's <laughs> you are work in particular, but yeah. it just seems like it's a, it's a, it's a rough go.
1: It's a, it it's a really rough go, actually. And, and the, the point is that, again, the end, only thing which counts in the end is, does that work for a patient? And does it get permits to be used on a patient? And, and this is a very, very slow process for different reasons. And it's uh, improvement. We try to avoid that by having models in, in animals and do that that the experiments in the animal. But I can never be sure whether the stuff we do in epilepsy treatment for animals is then something which is easily transferable to a human later on. Because, hey, the algorithm works there. the The classifier works there. Let's go to a patient and then we'll see whether it's working. But is that ethically correct? Because it's really, it's you are fiddling around with the brain of somebody, and uh, and you want to make sure that, b- to the least, it's not destructive in a way, but to the best, it's doesn't it doesn't affect him at all, except that it suppresses his symptoms. I mean, this is a, this is a clear open difficult question. In close distance, in close I mean, not even not even closely. I mean, there is a famous case in in Europe about a deep brain. A DBS patient, a Parkinson's patient, and he got a, a stimulator, and he got he got rid of most of the tremor system and stuff, of, so he could move and he could his quality of life improved significantly. However, he experienced the same thing as some as many other patients get with with the dopa with the medication. They get a, a loss of impulse control, and this guy got actually he got um, addicted to gambling. He lost everything, his complete house fortune, everything he lost. And he was suing the hospital because he said, you didn't tell me that I could become here addicted to something. And I would have never agreed on that. But he did it, of course, in a good quality of life situation where he did not tremor anymore. He was already changed by you the solve system. Solve one problem and create another. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, but was that the same guy? Even if, gave, if he gave a permit to that in the beginning, he was, he was informed up front. He was in a situation of a, of a bad Parkinson, low quality of life. He agreed on that. He took the risk in a way. And then he, everything's cool and he feels good, but all of a sudden, he no, now I lost something else. And is that still the same person who gave consent on that?
2: Hmm.
1: You know, it's from the from <laughs> ethical point of view, it's, it's really, really tough. And this is one of the first, besides all those neuropharmaca and stuff, this is one of the cases where you really think of you are affecting the character and the persons, literally. Is that only an because you're removing their... Disease, or at least their symptoms, or is that literally affecting their <laughs> character and personality? Yeah. Ooh, I don't know. I really don't know. But it's a—it's, in my opinion, very, very.
3: What did the it German d- court was decide? Dutch clutch. Dutch, um, um, what did they decide?
1: Well, he said they—they they informed him, and he did not get his money back. And then he decided, okay, then I don't want to—I don't want to be that gambling person anymore. And from then on, he turned off his stimulator. It, it, it was kept in place, but he turned it off and didn't want. It refused to have it uh, rerun again, and well, he's now he is now of course a full patient which needs a lot of attention from many. Uh, uh, but he's and not gambling. Hmm?
3: He's not gambling.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's not gambling, but he's now suffering from Parkinson's. Yeah, absolutely.
2: His choice in the end. Actually, that's fine. I guess maybe the moral of the story is being a, a compulsive gambler is just as bad as. Parkinson's is
1: getting you know, worse. Different example mm. is pain patients um, who are there's a comorbidity for in pain patients for, for chronic pain patients of depression. Now um, is that kind of caused by their pain or is that caused by is that maybe or even a, a disease which develops because of the pain. Now they are. <laughs> They are treated by spinal cord stimulation. Their pain is getting better. That's one of the methods to do that. Pain is getting better. And then their depression is going. But so is this, that...
0: this seems like one of these great situations where it would be really good to have another biomarker, like a neurochemical biomarker. Yes, right? yes. That would be
1: great. Yeah. Um, even though neurochemicals are difficult to measure over a longer period of time. Electro stuff is a lot easier to measure over a longer period of time.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but... but there will be optical methods for a lot of these neurochemical measures.
1: Yeah, but implant them. You have, to have an optical it. measure and implant it. I mean, it took 20 years almost of development for a non-implantable um, glucose sensor which you can use to run your insulin pump. Um, and that's for glucose, which is, you know, quite a uh, big molecule.
2: So it's okay to put stimulating electrodes in the brain, but not okay to put an optical fiber in the brain?
3: But what about um, uh, microfluidic analysis of the CSF? <laughs> I know that there's very little. I mean, there's. I mean, they be, they, there's some for these biomarkers. Uh.
1: The problem, uh, the, the problem with everything you put in the in the body, be it fluid, microfluidics to bio to CSF monitoring, be it glucose monitoring, whatever. You have to live with a very quick encapsulation and the response mm-hmm. of the tissue, and you have to live with that. If you find a trick to avoid that or to live with that over time, fine with me every time, no problem. But to my knowledge, whatever you put in there, if you need to get samples from within. Fluidic samples from within the body, mm-hmm. microfluidics clocks very quick, yeah. and then you're stuck. In electrical sensing way, so I would prefer a biomarker based on electricity somehow. If you can sense something, you can, and if it's strong enough signal, you can sense it whether it's, it's whether it's gliotically encapsulated mm-hmm. or not. Right, so that's why I would prefer yeah. electrical stuff.
0: See, I think basic scientists have learned this lesson long ago that you can't reply you can't rely on on one system or for a solution to your problem. Like electrophysiologists are now resorting to genetic tools and to you know, yeah, pharmacology. So
3: I mean, we're talking about this. That, that once you start enumerating these things, you can start seeing that that some of the technologies are there. Is uh, there's these problems so of encapsulation, but. But um,
1: I mean, there is one biomarker which is yeah. kind of in Parkinson's specific and is used nowadays for a closed-loop stimulation device um, is <clears throat> uh, the tremor sensor, actually. So they have wristbands, which have, which have accelerometers, and they see the tremor starting or increasing, and then they start the stimulation. So they have an outside system, which is connecting to an right. inside implant. That's a pretty wise idea. I'm not sure about the safety of the transferring from, way, uh, from one system to the next They're one. They're on a bus.
0: Or stuff like her. that, yes. I mean,
1: <laughs> but from the point of view, this is a quite a very robust biomarker because you can see that very easily. And, and then you could... You it could
2: doesn't require a lot of super fancy
1: yes.
2: technology or breakthroughs. Yes.
3: Like the one for the, the like a lazy foot uh, racing. Uh-huh. I don't know, it's not called lazy foot, but, but... Drop uh, food. it's called drop foot. Right? I mean it's just like measuring the angle, right, mm-hmm. of the of the foot and then just triggers uh, the Well the angle. easiest is
1: actually just a switch in your heel of your shoe and that triggers then the foot, the foot lift. Oh really? Yeah yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting.
2: So that's stuff that works. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah this is it's true. This Dr. Scholz. This is
1: really this is really I wouldn't call it low tech because the stimulator itself is really yeah. quite fancy. But yeah, that's a, this is a that's a solution that is working and and in the end, that's the measure. We, whatever we come up with fancy stuff and engineering solutions and blah, 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 it has to work, damn it. That's the only thing. It doesn't have to look nice. It has to work, and it has to look, work over the lifetime of, of humans. That's the measure of everything. Does it work? Is it effective? And does it work for a long time?
0: Thank you for joining us, Ulrich Hoffman. This has been Neuroscience Talks